Father, I pray right now that um, you truly show us who you are, Father, that right now in this time, uh, everything in our lives would fade away, Father, this time could be devoted to you and learning who you are um, and what that means to us in our lives, Father, what you intend for our lives. Um, Father, I pray right now that you take away every um, heartache and trouble that's on our minds. Father, even the good things that are going on in our life, Father, I pray that you remove it. You give us clear minds and hearts to, to hear your word and be changed by it. Father, I pray you do that. We know you're faithful, and we know you're mighty to save. Father, and we pray that you would make us new creations even today as we leave this place, that we'd not be the same as we came in, Father, that your spirit would clearly guide our steps. Um, Father, I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And if you would keep standing. Whew, proud of me? Yeah. We're in the middle of a uh, series on our statement of faith, and while we are doing that, we are uh, repeating, saying to ourselves and to one another the things that we believe, and we're in the middle of uh, our third point, which is about man. And so would you repeat after me as we talk about what we believe together about who we are? We believe that God created Adam and Eve in His image. But they sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under His wrath. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. And now you may be seated. And while you're doing so, if you would turn to Romans chapter 3 this morning. We're going to be in a few other places, but we'll spend most of our time in Romans chapter 3 this morning. Romans chapter 3, and we'll begin uh, in just a little bit in verse 9. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. I love stories, uh, especially written stories, uh, but also those that you can go and sit in the dark room and watch someone else uh, interpret those uh, for us uh, in movies and and TV shows. And you and I have found ourselves this morning and throughout our life in the middle of a story, a story that that we believe that God has written and that He has placed us in and that He has given us a task, as we talked last week, made in the image of God. We are to bring life into the world and we are to take the chaos that's around us and through the power of the Spirit of God and through a changed heart, bring order into that chaos as we live out of relationship both with God and with one another. And we walked through that last week. We are to bring life into the world and we're to bring order from chaos through relationship, both with God and with one another. The problem is, and, and, in, and really in, in all good stories, uh, the story starts with a setting which we talked about last week, and we were introduced to some of the characters, and and early on you've got to decide, okay, now, is this the main character? So God introduced to us someone named Adam and someone named Eve, and we we should, in the back of our minds, as we're watching any good story, reading a good story, are these going to be the main characters? And then after the setting, there is usually what's called an inciting incident, something that really begins to set the story in motion. It's the the initial problem that our hero has to overcome. We didn't talk about this last week, but in Genesis chapter 3, right after man is created, we get that inciting incident. There is a serpent. We know the devil, and he tempts Adam and Eve, and instead of Adam going to the shed and getting the hoe and cutting the snake's head off, which is what he should have done, he listened to his wife, and they ate, and they sinned, and they fell. 
And that, that sin not only affected them, but the rest of humanity and creation. And so what we want now is we need and we want a hero to come in and save the day. And when that hero does that in, in movie terms or in plot terms, that's what's called plot point one. It's when the hero decides, I'm going to take up this challenge and I'm going to fix the problem. And our problem is, as we live in our story, is we want to be the hero. And yet, Scripture is very clear that Adam and Eve didn't take up the mantle and say, we can solve this, because they couldn't. It was God who took up the problem, and God is the main character of our story. The problem is, most of humanity doesn't think that's true. Because we think we're able to do that. There's a Every generation, somebody says something like this. From way hundreds, thousands of years ago, every generation has somebody who will say something like this. Years ago, I discovered and proved that man is basically good. This means that the basic personality and the basic intentions of the individual toward himself and others are good. You know, if you recognize L. Ron Hubbard is the one who kind of launched Scientology. We're good. And even if it's not someone who has a, a mouthpiece who's written a book, we get it subtly woven through our culture. Many of you have seen the movie Secondhand Lions, um, which kind of had some redemptive themes in it, and yet one of the main characters, Robert Duvall's character, Uncle Hub, said this. Sometimes the things that may or may not be true are the things that a man needs to believe in the most. That people are basically good. And he says some of the things along those same lines, but for the sake of space. You remember, talking to his nephew, uh, that doesn't ma- you remember that. It doesn't matter if it's true or not, you see. A, a man should believe in those things because those are the things worth believing in. Because you and I want and you and I need to be the heroes of our own story. And we also know from reading enough stories and watching enough stories that the hero is the good guy. And so we have to be good if we're going to be the hero. I really can't be what God says about me if I'm going to be the hero. And so I have to believe that. Whether it's true or not, I have to believe that. I have to believe that I actually can be the hero of my own story. And that's what, not just our culture, we can't just go, oh, I wish we could live back. That's been the mantra of every culture since Adam and Eve walked out of the garden. We want, we need, we have to be the hero of our own, cult, of our own story. But can we? Is that true? Are we the hero of ours? Is that possible even? But we have to answer a question. Does it matter? Really, ultimately. Can you believe what you want? Can I believe what I want? Does it matter... I'm the hero of my own story. What does Scripture say? Well, first it, we, we read in, in numerous places, but Psalm 24 gives us the expectation. The real hero's expectation, God's expectation. Who may ascend to your holy hill? Who may stand in your holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, the psalmist writes. Well, I 
I used antibacterial soap this morning, so that's good, right? Uh, and as far as a pure heart goes, well, more or less, right? Is, is that, is more or less okay? Uh, most of the time, five days out of seven, uh, at least when I'm asleep, is that enough? Is that okay? Who may stand in the presence of God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's the expectation. Well, what's the reality? Paul gives us the reality in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were mostly dead in your trespasses and sins. No, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked uh, according to God's way? No, according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that same one that tempted Adam and Eve. We followed his desires. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all, not some of us, but all of us, formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature who we are to our core, we're children of wrath, even as the rest. He goes on in, in chapter 2 to talk about us being estranged, us being far from God, us being separate from Him, without God and without hope in the world. That's the reality. That's the reality of the fall. Yeah, but surely it's not, I mean, not, not that bad, is it? I mean, surely some of us, I mean, that's maybe most of us, but surely some of us in this room doesn't affect all of us. Surely there's somebody, someone back in the sound booth, somebody that that's not quite right for, right? Someone's got to be our hero, right? And just a, a page over in Romans chapter 5, Paul gives us kind of the extent of the deadness, the us being under wrath. Verse 6, we were helpless. Verse 8, we were sinners. Verse 10, we were enemies. And then he talks about how that came about. Verse 12, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Not some, not a couple, not a few, but all. Verse 15, for if by the transgression of one the many died, again back to Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses. Verse 16, judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. Verse 17, by the transgression of the one, talking about Adam, death reigned through the one. Verse 18, through one transgression that resulted condemnation to all men. Verse 19, for as though, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. The extent of Adam and Eve's sin is that it affects all of us. You were born into it. You can't escape it. 
we call that doctrine total depravity, um, but there's some things that it's not, and there's some things that, is are, that it is. So first, let me, let me define some terms. What does it not mean? Number one, it, it does not mean that people have no sense of right and wrong. God's given us a conscience. Just because I'm totally depraved doesn't mean that I know sometimes that what I did is wrong. It does not mean that I don't understand sometimes that I'm doing the wrong thing. Now, we can harden our conscience. We can sear it so that we lose the ability to distinguish that. But humanity has been given a conscience. It doesn't mean that I don't understand when I do something wrong that it's wrong. You can look on a small child's face, those innocent children, when they do something wrong, and you know, and they know, because they'll hide They'll put their eyes down. They know that they've done something wrong. Number two, it does not mean that people are as sinful as they could be. Total depravity doesn't mean that we all rush to the extent of our sin. No, culture, parenting, peer pressure actually can keep us in check, in line. Our own makeup, our own personality. It doesn't mean that all of you outside of Christ are murderers, Terrorists, adulterers, liars, thieves. Culture can keep us in check. Our family can keep us in check. Certain personalities. In the, the general grace that God gives to humanity. Number three, it does not mean that all people practice every kind of evil. You may have a propensity towards certain kind of sin that your neighbor may not. You may struggle with gossip when your neighbor, neighbor struggles with adultery. You may struggle with lying and your neighbor struggles with anger. Number four, it does not mean that nobody does some relative good. People contribute to society even though they are depraved. People can do good things relatively, but not compared to God. Because even if I do something that is helpful to society, even if I smile at my neighbor, if I help the old lady across the street, without God, I'm doing that either for my own good or the good of the benefit. And the Bible very clearly speaks that we do things for God's glory. We talked about that about a month ago, that God desires His glory, His name to be great among the nations. And the relative good that we do outside of Christ is either for our own benefit, our own glory, or maybe the glory of those around us. But certainly not God's. So that's what it doesn't mean. What does it mean? What is total depravity? Sin affects every area of our being. We're going to flesh this out in a minute from Romans chapter 3. It affects all of us from our minds to our spirits to the flesh that houses those things. Sin affects all of us. Number two, the inclination to sin resides in every person. The inclination to sin resides in all of us. Again, it doesn't look the same in all of us, but we're all selfish by nature. We all don't want to honor God. We all want to make ourselves look good in front of other people. Number three, no one's good satisfies God's perfection. Even my relative good is not really clean hands and a pure heart. 
God is not Santa Claus who has the checklist and is weighing out the good and the bad. Well, you know, he did... And it, it's not like this. He did five good acts this week, right? And that's better than the four he did last week, right? We don't satisfy God's perfection by the things that we do. We can't satisfy God's perfection by the things that we do because we're not perfect. Right? It's not three strikes and you're out. It's You don't even get a chance to bat. You don't even hold the bat right. It's not even one strike and you're out. You show up depraved on this planet. You don't have a chance. Number four, no one's good commends them to God or obligates God to do anything. So those five good acts you did, okay, that doesn't mean that it won't rain on your picnic on Saturday. God's not going, well, God, you know, that's four days in a row he didn't lose his temper. I'm going to make the sun shine on the picnic on Saturday. Fourteen good acts this week. Right, I'm gonna, that car repair is not going to cost as much as it would have otherwise. That's not the way it works. We don't, we don't build up, right? we don't commend ourselves to God, and we don't obligate Him to treat us a certain way by our good works. You don't build up credit for a sunny day, a bigger bank account, health, or safety. It just doesn't work that way. So that's what it's not. That's what it is. So let's go back and and talk about the fact that it affects every area of our being in Romans chapter 3. So first of all, in verse... Let me read that whole passage and then we'll we'll break it down. He begins in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. First of all, man's condition in Romans chapter 3. We are under sin. Uh, That phrase means that it is our master. Paul fleshes that out in in chapter 6 and actually uses those terms. We are slaves to sin. The problem is, we've read enough stories, we know that slaves escape. We know that sometimes slaves can get away. We know that with the right intelligence and the right situation, if the master turns his back, we can run, we can get away. But that's not how our slavery to sin works. He is a master that is ever vigilant. You and I don't have the ability to escape that outside of Christ. We can't beat it. We can't fight it. We can't run from it. We are slaves to sin. We are under the yoke of sin. And so then in the rest of those verses in 10 through 18, he fleshes out what is the extent of that sin. And he begins in verse 10, 
And he says that our being is depraved. There is none righteous, not even one. Uh, Not just there's none that... He's not talking about acts. He's talking about our being is not righteous and we need to be righteous to be in God's presence. We can't be mostly righteous, just like you can't be mostly alive or mostly dead unless you're in a Princess Bride movie. Then you can be mostly dead. The problem is we don't have a Miracle Max to come along and help us be all the way righteous. Even if we think we're mostly righteous, that's not the extent that God requires. He requires righteousness. And none of us are righteous. You can't Photoshop your soul. In our culture, we can make anything look good. Right? We have enough technology to make anything look good. But you can't you can't do that. You can't trick God into thinking, I can clean myself up. The standard is righteousness. And Paul says there is none righteous. Our being is depraved. Second, our mind is depraved. Beginning of verse 11, there's none who understands. We don't get it. We're still, unless God intervened in our lives, we will always be trying to be the hero of our story. Always. I can do it. I can fix it. It can be okay with enough psychology or philosophy or talking to myself, repeating the lie over and over again. I really can be okay. We don't understand that God has a standard and when we don't meet it, we're dead in our sins and we're children of wrath because our mind is depraved. We're not smart enough to make the right decision because the world looks too good. Money or power or possessions or pleasure. It's like, that's what I need. That will solve my problem. So our being is depraved, our mind is depraved, our purpose is depraved. There's none who seeks for God. We're seeking all kinds of stuff besides God. All have turned aside. They have become useless or maybe worthless is the way you might translate that word. Instead of seeking God that we might glorify Him, we go our own way. Our, our ways don't bring Him glory. They don't have a purpose that really benefits us or anybody else. We're not willing to benefit the kingdom. Our goal is to benefit ourselves. Our purpose is depraved. I'm not interested in the kingdom's good or my neighbor's good or God's good. I'm just interested in what makes me look better in your eyes. That may have some benefits to you, again, depending upon how I was raised and the culture I'm in and what it takes to be a good boy and girl in our society. But I'm not seeking God. Our being is depraved, our mind is depraved, our purpose is depraved, our words are depraved. Notice all the different words he uses for things that come out of our mouth. Their throat, their tongues, their lips, their mouth. Things that we say. We're not interested in building one another up, we're interested in what I can say to make you like me or to make me look good. And an interesting phrase, our throat is an open grave. 
Now, in our culture, we put people in boxes, and so even if the grave was open, we wouldn't see the decay. But in lots of places, you just dig a hole and you bury someone, and if you dug under there after time, you would find what? You would find the source of and why we call that a grave, right? The idea is our throat is an open grave. What comes out is not really the issue. It's where it comes from. It's what's in the grave that's corrupt and decaying and dead, right? Our throat just shows us and leads to where all that stuff comes out of, and it comes out of where? Jesus said, our heart. But we only speak what's in here. Nothing comes out of our mouth that doesn't originate somewhere else. And so really what Paul's saying is, is that our heart is depraved, which leads to our words being depraved. Our being is depraved, our mind is depraved, our purpose is depraved, our words are depraved, our ways or our actions are depraved. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Wait a minute, I've not shed any blood. Well, those bugs that I kill. Remember, Jesus equated that with our anger towards our brother. Those flippant words that we say that make us guilty before the judge. We may not have stuck a knife in someone's back, literally, but how many times have we metaphorically, or even in our mind? Destruction and misery are in their paths. And I'm not sure if Paul's so much talking about other people, we, and we do that, we... We spread destruction and misery when we go, when we sin, but as much for ourselves as anywhere else. We destroy ourselves by our sin, and we're miserable. We don't know the path of peace, he says at the end of verse 17. We're looking for peace, we're trying to find it, and we think we can do it by taking advantage of someone, by getting on top by saying the right things, by doing the right things. And Augustine recognized that 1,500 years ago, our hearts are restless until they rest in Him. We don't know peace outside of God. It's not possible. Our being is depraved, our mind is depraved, our purpose is depraved, our words are depraved, our ways or our actions are depraved. Finally, our vision is depraved. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. We've talked about that phrase before, the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. Paralleled in the psalm to His words, His commandments, following after Him. But also the idea of, of, as we've said numerous times, the sailor who both fears and can't get enough of the sea. And we don't see that. We don't have that before our eyes because we've not had an opportunity. We can't. We don't understand even where to look. And there's too many things around us that are flashy and attractive and will give us pleasure. And so I don't even look. I don't even gaze. We are depraved from top to bottom. Everybody feel good this morning? <laughs> what do we do? And I don't have the ability. My mind is depraved. I can't, I don't even know where to look. 
There are scales in my eyes. I can't find this God. But there is a solution. We turn back to Ephesians for a moment. And we are going to talk about this in more detail next week. But see, the the solution doesn't matter if I don't understand the problem. If I don't know that there's mold under the house, I won't ever call someone to fix it. So we begin in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were walking according to the prince of the power of the air. We lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And again, he would go on to say we were without hope and without God in the world. And then... The two greatest words in Scripture are found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God. The hero of the story showed up. He didn't just show up. He'd been working since that inciting incident, since Adam and Eve fell, since they believed the lie, they took the shortcut. He'd been working. And it always been working through the idea, through the foreshadow of sacrifice. They had taken some leaves and covered themselves, and he said, that's not sufficient. And so an animal was slain to make skin to cover them. The first of a long series of examples of what sacrifice looks like. When there is sin, something has to die. Paul would say it this way, the wages of sin, what sin earns is death. And so from the very beginning, the hero of the story has been in action. He's been moving despite us, despite his people. He has been pursuing, he has been searching, he has been seeking, he has been redeeming. until we come to the cross. And the only one, the only one who's ever been righteous said, I'll do, I'll pay the penalty that they deserve. Father, I will do that. I will pay the penalty that they deserve. I will take the death for that sin, for that unrighteousness, for those unclean lips and those unclean hands and those unclean minds and those unclean purposes and those unclean ways and those unclean beings. I will become a child of wrath so that they don't have to. But God. You are without hope you are without God and without hope in the world. But God. Paul goes on to say, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's not like we we were able to like muster up a little bit of goodness for him to notice us. It's not like we met him halfway or a fourth of the way or a millionth of the way. We weren't mostly dead, we were dead. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, remade, re-imaged, if you will, for good work which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them, but only through a relationship with Christ. That's not good news if we don't understand the extent and the depth of the bad news. That's just another way of kind of working life. If I don't understand the depth of the bad news, that can't be good news. Because if I, if I still am trying to be the hero of my life, I don't need Jesus to be the hero of my life. I don't need Him to be my righteousness if I still think, I'll get it this week. I can try again. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and try one more time. In your bulletin, and I'm sorry I don't have a slide today because it slipped my mind. In your bulletin is uh, a portion of Psalm 51, or you can just take your Bible and turn there. First, I forget, 14 verses of Psalm 51. It is a, a prayer of David as he has recognized and understood the depths of his own sin. And so, uh, what I want us to do this morning for our extended time of prayer, usually that's used as preparation, uh, but this morning I want to use it as response. I want us to recognize that without Christ, and many of you understand forgiveness, many of you understand the depths and the wonder of what God has done for us. And so maybe you use this time as just thanksgiving and praise for how He has taken you from death to life. But as you do that, I would encourage you to read through Psalm 51 because David fleshes out his understanding. Remember, David had committed adultery and had committed murder. And you read through the beginning of Psalm 51 when he says, Against you and you only have I sinned. And I think, really, David? Really? Seems like there's some other people you've sinned against. <laughs> but he was saying he understood at the core of his being what was wrong. That there's a, a God of the universe that's greatly more offended than anybody else that, that you and I could ever offend. And so I would encourage you either to use that as a, as a, a time of even repentance in your own life, or as a reminder of what we owe God and use it as a time of praise. But let's take a few minutes and pray silently together. And then David's going to come and, and lead us in a couple more songs. Let's pray.